Chapter 3 of Indian Frontier Policy This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Indian Frontier Policy An Historical Sketch By General Sir John Adai, GCBRA Chapter 3 Frontier Policy Since the Second Afghan War including the expedition to Chitral, covering Further Advance of Russia, Merv Occupied, Sir West Ridgeway's Frontier Commission of 1885, the Durand Agreement with Abdul Rahman, the Chitral Expedition of 1895 and its results, A Sudden Outbreak of Frontier Tribes, 1897. The reaction after the war naturally inclined the authorities in both countries to leave frontier policy alone, at all events for the time. Our professed object for years had been to make Afghanistan strong, friendly, and independent. The first had certainly not been accomplished, and the other two were doubtful. Still, by patience, conciliation, and subsidies, we might hope in the course of time that the wounds we had inflicted would gradually be healed and a more stable condition ensue. For a short period it was so, but then the old bugbear of Russian advance over the dreary wastes of Central Asia again supervened, and exercised its malign influence on our policy. In 1881 and the following years, Russia, whilst completing her conquests and improving her communications in the southwestern part of Central Asia, became involved in somewhat prolonged hostilities with the Teke Turkomans, ending in their subjugation and in the occupation of the long, desolate strip of country extending eastwards from the Caspian, which had hitherto been independent. A railway was gradually constructed from the vicinity of Krasnovodsk on the Caspian towards Samarkand. Merv, formerly a city of importance, but of late a mere village in the desert, was also occupied. These acquisitions of Russia, accomplished in districts far removed from India, would not appear to involve any special consideration on our part, but as the southern frontiers of Russia thus became conterminous for a long distance with northern Persia, and also with some districts of Afghanistan, their new position was regarded as possibly involving designs against our Indian empire, and remonstrances were made by us, more especially as regards the occupation of Merv. Footnote, Central Asia, number 2, 1885. In a strategical point of view, the question would not appear to be of much importance, and would probably have dropped, but in early 1885 the Russians attacked and drove the Afghan troops out of Penjay, a small, hitherto almost unknown village in the desert. It was a high-handed measure, and the relations between the two governments, British and Russian, which were already rather strained, became critical, and war at one moment appeared to be almost inevitable. It is not necessary, nor would it be desirable, now to recapitulate the details of this serious crisis, because happily, owing to the prudence exercised by both governments, the danger gradually passed away, a joint commission being agreed on, to meet on the frontier and to report as to its delimitation. It may, however, be as well to mention that it seems rather doubtful whether Penjay at the time absolutely belonged to Afghanistan, 
Frontiers in the East are proverbially uncertain and shifting, and in our own official maps, not very long before the occurrences in question, it was marked as outside the Afghan border. Colonel Stewart, reporting in 1884 on the northern frontier of Afghanistan and alluding to Penjay, said that it was inhabited by Turkomans, and he thus described the position, quote, the state of affairs seems to have been that the Turkomans acknowledged that they were squatting on Afghan land and were liable to pay taxes, and each year they paid something as an acknowledgment of Afghan rights. But so long as this was done, the Afghans looked upon them as a protection against the Teke further north and left them very much to themselves. Unquote. The appointment of a joint commission of Russian and British officers to delimit the northern frontiers of Afghanistan proved of great value, not only in gaining information regarding districts hitherto but little known, but also because its conjoint work tended to engender feelings of respect and goodwill between the two nations concerned. Its labours commenced in the autumn of 1885, and the report of Sir West Ridgway, the British commissioner, is full of interest and encouragement. In an article in the 19th century of October 1887, on the completion of his work, he gives some details of the country, and also of the position of Russia in Central Asia, which are worth quoting. As to the Afghan border, he says, quote, The three or four hundred miles of country through which the new northwestern frontier of Afghanistan runs is a sandy, treeless, waterless desert, except where it is traversed from south to north by the Heri Rood, the Murgab and the Oxus. The only cultivable land is on the banks of these rivers, but in springtime, after the winter snows have melted, the intervening plains afford good grazing for sheep. Unquote. But perhaps the most important part of his article is his view of the position of Russia in Central Asia. Quote, if any Russian general were so reckless as to attempt the invasion of India, and relying on the single line of lightly constructed rails which connects the Caspian with the Oxus, and which are liable in summer to be blocked by the moving sands of the desert, and in winter by the falling snows of heaven, if, relying on this frail and precarious base, he were to move an army through the barren plains bordering the Oxus, and leaving in his rear the various hostile and excited races of Central Asia, he were to cross the difficult passes of the Hindu Kush, and entangle his army in the barren mountain homes of the fanatical and treacherous Afghan, then, indeed, our fortunate generals may well congratulate themselves that the Lord has delivered the enemy into their hand. Unquote. Whilst, however, his conclusions as to the military weakness of Russia in that part of the world are clear and decisive enough, he at the same time does full justice to the good work which she is carrying out in that vast area. He says, quote, Hitherto Russia's advance in Central Asia has been the triumph of civilization. Wherever she has planted her flag, slavery has ceased to exist. This was keenly brought home to us in the course of our travels. For hundreds of miles before we reached Herat, we found the country desolated and depopulated by Turkoman raids, while even in the Herat Valley we continually came across the fathers and brothers of men who had been carried off from their peaceful fields by man-stealing Turkomans, and sold into slavery many hundred miles away. 
All this has ceased since the Russian occupation of Merv. The cruel slave trade has been stamped out. Unquote. Lord Salisbury, speaking in 1887, at the conclusion of the frontier delimitation, happily described the situation as follows. Quote, I value the settlement for this reason, not that I attach much importance to the square miles of desert land with which we have been dealing, and which probably after ten generations of mankind will not yield the slightest value to any human being, but the settlement indicates on both sides that spirit which in the two governments is consistent with continued peace. There is abundant room for both governments, if they would only think so. Unquote. What a pity that some statesmen could not have persuaded England to that effect fifty years before. During the next few years no events of special importance occurred to affect our general frontier policy in India, so far as Russia and Afghanistan proper are concerned. The ample information we now possess of the relative power and position of each country, and the experience gained in bygone wars, enable us to form a correct judgment of the great strength of our empire in the East, and it is to be hoped that in the future we shall hear less of those alarmist views which have so frequently led us into erroneous policy and untoward expeditions. Russia and England are now happily on friendly terms, and Abdul Rahman, the Emir of Kabul, although his position is difficult in the midst of a turbulent people, has proved himself a loyal neighbour. But another cloud has appeared on the horizon, and our troubles with the intervening frontier tribes are now apparently worse than ever. From accounts already given of those who dwell along the border, it is evident that although our differences with them during past years have been frequent and often serious, they have been more or less of a local character. Troublesome, as our neighbours have proved, still they have no power of inflicting serious injury or of endangering our rule. Under these circumstances the best policy, while firmly repressing their predatory interests, is to leave them alone. In the absence of full official information as to the origin of recent difficulties, which have culminated in the present frontier war, it is only possible to speak in general terms. It may be mentioned, in the first place, that, owing to the uncertain line of demarcation between the territories of the Emir of Kabul and those of his independent tribal neighbours, constant feuds and local hostilities occurred from time to time in the mountains, and with a view of defining their respective spheres, the government of India, in 1893, sent a mission to Kabul for the purpose. This in itself would appear to have been a reasonable step, and the Durand Agreement, which ensued, but which has not been published, would, it was hoped, tend to a cessation of conflicts between the Emir's subjects and their neighbours. But there is a further aspect of the question. So far as is known, not only were the respective borders laid down, but it is understood that in many cases the intervening tribes are now assumed to be what is termed within the sphere of British influence. In maps recently published, presumably with some authority, vast mountainous districts are now included in this somewhat mysterious phrase. For instance, the Coram Valley, the Samana Range, the countries of the Afredes and the Momans, the districts of Chitral, Bajor, Deer, Swat, Bonaire, and others, are all included within it, 
and in many instances fortified positions occupied by British troops are to be found either within or along their borders. Surely this opens out a wide question, and it would be interesting to know whether, in the discussions at Kabul, the chiefs of the intervening tribes were present, and whether they acquiesced, not only in the new boundaries, but also in being included as within our sphere of influence. It is evident it should have been a tripartite, and not a dual agreement. It is perfectly well known, and has been proved by long experience, that these frontier tribes value their independence and liberties beyond everything else, and will not submit peacefully to interference and if they were not consulted in the arrangements just described, we may begin to trace the origin of the present crisis. Although, as I have explained, we are unable, from want of official information, to deal fully with the larger topic of recent border policy, we have at all events ample details as regards the Chitral question in the parliamentary papers published. Footnote. Northwest Frontier, Chitral, 1895. It appears that, so long ago as 1876, the ruler of Chitral voluntarily tendered his allegiance to the Maharaja of Kashmir, and endeavoured, but without success, to persuade the neighbouring chiefs of Swat, Bajor, and Deer to follow his example. Now Chitral and Kashmir are not only far apart, but are separated by lofty mountain ranges, inhabited by other tribes, so that this sudden offer of vassalage appears rather inexplicable. It transpired, however, a few years afterwards, that his real motive in seeking the friendship of Kashmir was due to his fear of aggression by the emir of Kabul. Footnote, Ibid, page 46. The government of India, at the time, encouraged this somewhat sentimental friendship, and in order to obtain influence over the intervening tribes, established a fort at Gilgit, in an almost inaccessible position, not far from the snowy crests of the Hindu Kush. The position, however, proved to be costly, and also dangerous from unfriendly neighbours, and as after three years' experience no special object was attained, it was withdrawn in 1881. In 1889 the old fears of possible Russian aggression again revived, and Gilgit was reoccupied with a strong detachment of Kashmir troops, accompanied by several English officers. The government of India pointed out that the development of Russian military resources in Asia rendered it necessary to watch the passes over the mountains in order to prevent what was called a coup de main from the north. In short, they dreaded the march of a Russian army over the Pamirs and the Hindu Kush, a region where nature has constructed for us perhaps one of the most formidable frontiers in the world. Friendship with the ruler of Chitral was also cultivated. He was given an annual subsidy and a present of five hundred Sniders, being visited also by English officers. It was even contemplated at the time to construct a direct road from his capital to our frontier near Peshawar. But as he was suspicious, and as his neighbours in Swat, Bajor, and others would probably have objected, the suggestion was happily postponed. In October 1892, the ruler of Chitral died, and after the usual family contests and intrigues, Nizamul Mulk, his son, established his authority in the country. In January 1893, Dr. Robertson arrived at Chitral as our representative, 
accompanied by two officers and fifty Sikhs. Although he was received in a friendly manner by the new ruler, his account of the state of affairs in April was discouraging and ominous. He wrote, quote, We seem to be on a volcano here. Matters are no longer improving. The atmosphere of Chitral is one of conspiracy and intrigue. Unquote. A few weeks later, he gave a more cheerful account, and although he described the people as fickle, he considered that Englishmen were safe. It became evident, however, that the Nizam ul Mulk was weak and unpopular, and Dr. Robertson described the country as, quote, in a distracted state and torn by factions. Unquote. The reports of our agent, in short, would seem to prove that he was in a false and dangerous position, with a small escort far away in the mountains, about two hundred miles from our frontier. In January 1895, the Nizam was murdered by his brother, and the whole country at once again fell into anarchy. Dr. Robertson, who had been temporarily absent but had returned in February, was besieged in a fort with his escort, which, however, had been increased to about 290 men. The crisis had come at last, and there was no time to spare. A strong force under Sir Robert Lowe was assembled at Peshawar and crossed the frontier on April the 1st. It must be pointed out that, in proceeding to Chitral, the British troops had necessarily to pass through a difficult mountainous country, inhabited by independent tribes, and the government of India issued a proclamation in which they pointed out that their sole object, quote, is to put an end to the present and to prevent any future unlawful aggression on Chitral territory, and that as soon as this object has been attained, the force would be withdrawn. Unquote. The proclamation went on to say that the government quote, have no intention of permanently occupying any territory through which Mura Khan's misconduct may now force them to pass, or of interfering with the independence of the tribes. Unquote. The military operations were conducted with great skill and rapidity, and Dr. Robertson's small garrison, which at one time had been hard-pressed, was saved. A small force under Colonel Kelly, which had left Gilgit, having by a daring and successful march arrived just before the main body from Peshawar. The short campaign having thus accomplished its object, the gradual withdrawal of the British troops in accordance with the proclamation would seem to have been a natural sequence. In the weak, distracted state of the country, and in the assumed necessity of not losing our influence in those distant regions, the government of India, however, considered that a road from our frontier to Chitral should be made, and certain positions retained in order to guard it. This vital question having been carefully considered at home, the Secretary of State for India, on June 13, 1895, telegraphed to the Viceroy that Her Majesty's Government regretted they were unable to concur in the proposal. He went on to say that, quote, No military force or European agent shall be kept at Chitral, that Chitral should not be fortified, and that no road should be made between Peshawar and Chitral, unquote. He added that all positions beyond our frontier should be evacuated as speedily as circumstances allowed. It so happened that within a few days of this important decision, a change of government occurred at home, and the question was reconsidered, and on August the 9th fresh instructions were telegraphed to India, 
by which it was ordered that British troops should be stationed at the Malakund Pass, leading into Swat, and that other posts, up to and including Chitral, should also be held, and a road made through the country. In short, the previous decision was entirely reversed. Before going further, it may be as well to point out that this is no mere question between one political party and another. It goes far beyond that, and we may feel assured that in considering the subject both governments were actuated by a desire to do what was considered best in the interests of the Indian Empire. Still, it is, I think, impossible not to regard the ultimate decision as very unfortunate, and as likely to lead to serious consequences. In a mere military point of view, it was a repetition of the policy pursued of recent years of establishing isolated military posts in countries belonging to others, or in their vicinity, inevitably tending to aggravate the tribes, and which in time of trouble, instead of increasing our strength, are and have been the cause of anxiety to ourselves. Therefore, not only as a matter of policy, but in a purely military sense, the arrangement was dangerous. I would further observe that many officers, both civil and military, men of the highest character and long experience in the Punjab and its borders, did not hesitate to express their opinions at the time, that retribution would speedily follow, and their anticipations appear now to have been verified. Suddenly, not many weeks ago, the people of Swat, who were said to be friendly, violently attacked our position on the Malakund, losing, it is said, three thousand men in the attempt, and also nearly captured a fortified post a few miles distant at Chakdara. Not only that, but this unexpected outbreak was followed by hostilities on the part of the tribes in Bajur, and by the Momans north of Peshawar, and also by the Afredis, who, subsidized by us, had for years guarded the celebrated Khyber. Again, the tribes of the Samana range, and others to the west of Kohat, rose in arms, and a very large force of British troops had to be pushed forward in all haste to quell this great combined attack on the part of our neighbours. General Sir Neville Chamberlain, perhaps the greatest living authority on frontier questions, has written quite recently, pointing out that never previously had there been a semblance of unity of action amongst the different tribesmen. Footnote. Saturday Review, 30th of October, 1897. There surely must have been some very strong feeling of resentment and injustice which brought so many tribesmen for the first time to combine in opposition to what they evidently considered an invasion of their country. As regards the Afredis, who are spoken of as treacherous and faithless, it must be borne in mind that in 1881 we specially recognised their independence. Footnote. Afghanistan, number 1, 1881, page 57 and have ever since subsidised them for the special purpose of guarding the commerce through the Khyber, a duty which they have faithfully carried out until the present summer. Lord Lytton, who was Viceroy when the arrangement was proposed at the end of the war, wrote in 1880, footnote, Ibid, page 62, quote, I sincerely hope that the government of India will not be easily persuaded to keep troops permanently stationed in the Khyber, I feel little doubt that such a course would tend rather to cause trouble than to keep order. Small bodies of troops would be a constant provocation to attack. Large bodies would die like flies. 
I believe that the pass tribes themselves, if properly managed, will prove the best guardians of the pass, and be able, as well as willing, to keep it open for us, if we make it worth their while to do so. Unquote. Many of these very men, and those of other tribes on the frontier, have for years enlisted in our ranks, and have proved to be good soldiers. I repeat, that some strong cause must have influenced them suddenly to break out into war. Until the present military operations have been brought to a close, and until full official information has been given of the circumstances which have led to them, it is not possible to pronounce a final judgment. Still, it seems to me that we have strong grounds for believing that the border policy of late years has in many instances been too aggressive and regardless of the rights of the tribes, and that the course finally pursued of the retention of fortified posts through Swat and Bajur to Chitral has been the ultimate cause which has excited the people against us and produced so great and costly a border war. It must also not be forgotten that even now we are merely on the fringe, as it were, of the question, and that if we persist in forcing ourselves forward, we shall have many a costly campaign to undertake, far away, in distant, little-known regions, more difficult and more inaccessible even than those in which we now find ourselves. On the whole, it appears to me that we should as far as possible withdraw our isolated posts, so many of which are either within the tribal region or along its borders. It is sometimes argued that any withdrawal on our part would have a demoralizing effect on the tribes, who would ascribe our retirement to inability to maintain our positions. Footnote, Chitral, 1895, page 62. The best reply will perhaps be to quote the words of Lord Hartington, when under similar circumstances it was decided in 1881 to retire from Kandahar. He said, footnote, Afghanistan, number 1, 1881, page 92, quote, The moral effect of a scrupulous adherence to declarations which have been made, and a striking and convincing proof given to the people and princes of India, that the British government have no desire for further annexation of territory, could not fail to produce a most salutary effect. In removing the apprehensions and strengthening the attachment of our native allies throughout India and on our frontiers. Unquote. These remarks may now be brought to a close. My object throughout has been to give an historical summary of the various wars and expeditions in which we have been engaged during the present century on the northwest frontier of India, and of the causes which have led to them. My observations are founded on parliamentary official papers and on other works of authority, and I hope they may prove useful to the public, who have not, as a rule, time to study the intricate details of this difficult subject. I have endeavoured to prove that the tribes on the frontier and the people of Afghanistan have no real power of injuring our position in India, and, turbulent as they may be, a policy of patience, conciliation and subsidies is far more likely to attain our object than incessant costly expeditions into their mountains. Our influence over them is already great, and is increasing year by year, by carefully maintaining the principles I have sketched out, we shall gradually obtain their friendship, and also their support, should other dangers ever threaten our dominions. 
We are the rulers of a great empire in the East, with its heavy duties and responsibilities, and in devoting ourselves to the welfare of the millions under our sway, and in developing the resources of the country, we shall do far more for the happiness of the people and the security of the empire than by squandering our finances in constant expeditions beyond its borders. End of Indian Frontier Policy and Historical Sketch by General Sir John Adai, GCB, RA